The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see folks here tonight. I've been out of town for a month on retreat, and so it feels good to come home. And really grateful for all the teachers who taught this last month, so I could be away. And I thought coming off of the retreat, it'd be nice to spend a little time tonight for me first to talk about this really central part of the path that the Buddha taught about retreating. Don't always think of that word in the sort of formal sense of signing up for a retreat and going away, but just that more internal move of our mind, of our heart, that in fact, it's safe to put things down for a while, put down our duties and responsibilities, and for a period of time not embodying, not having to be the person that has to take care of the dog or the cat or the kids or the partner or the world even. And it's not that the dogs and cats and world and partners and you know job sites It's not that those places, those things don't need our attention. They do. I mean, clearly, there's a lot that needs doing in the world, in our lives. But that doesn't mean it isn't deeply skillful to put it all down. Just because the work isn't done, does that mean we can't... I mean, that would mean no deep sleep, right? Because when we... I mean, when we're dreaming, we're still kind of involved in the world. But in those moments of deep sleep, we're really putting it down completely, putting down the load. And so now we're doing, you know, in practice, we're learning to do that very consciously, intentionally. And the whole form, like whether it's a morning sit or a sit here at Common Ground or you sign up for a nine-day retreat, a weekend retreat, All of those forms, again, whether it's just a daily sit or something more substantial like an organized retreat, the form of, you know, deciding I'm going to sit or deciding I'm going to go on retreat and arranging our lives, making sure things are covered to some degree, the contingencies, never perfectly, but to some degree, someone's going to move the car if there's a lot of snow or Someone's going to water the plants or, you know, I'm, my phone is off for this hour sit or this 30-minute sit. The people I live with know not to come into the room. Right? We take care of those things. And we sit down, we find a posture that we think will be suitable for the period of time we're going to sit or if we're going on a retreat, you know, a place we can retreat that's not too busy not too many duties and responsibilities. I can, you know, be relatively free of having to be a creature trying to survive. There's food available, heat available, shelter, you know, basic needs are covered. So I don't have to be obsessive about getting my basic needs met. And then in that relatively safe, place, whether it's a morning sit or going on a retreat, then we sit down in the middle of it all and we intentionally put it down. 
of course, a lot of what we're noticing is the picking it up again, the picking up this worry, this planning, this hope, this fear, this unfinished business from the past, this passion, something we really care about in the world, wanting it to be different than it is or wanting it to last, whatever it might be. We notice how the mind gets entangled, picks up everything. We notice the stress of that. And once again, and this is the deeper move that we do hundreds hundreds of thousands of times really over the course of our practice, in seeing that particular entanglement, that particular strand of obsessive thinking or worrying or wanting or hating or resenting or feeling shame. So there's so many different currents, patterns that we could fall into. Just that insight, that simple insight of saying, honey, we don't need to do this now. This isn't helpful now. This could be put down now. And there are different ways we put it down. Sometimes just seeing that it isn't necessary to be entangled is enough. Sometimes we redirect the attention to something else. It's like a you do with a little child sometimes, you know, where they're messing with something that the child shouldn't mess with and you dangle a different toy in front of them. Maybe you want to play with this? You know, and they reach out for that and then you grab the thing that they shouldn't be playing. You know, they're playing with a knife or something. You know, take that away. But you just don't grab the knife away. First you kind of want this, right? And you can do that with our minds too. Like maybe you want to feel the body or maybe you want to feel the breath or maybe you want to hear sound. Maybe you want to see that seeing is happening. Right? You give them some, give the mind some neutral, not harmful thing to pay attention to, so that it isn't going down that road. You know, like revisiting all my resentments or all my wounds and spinning, going around the block a few times with that old content, digging the hole a little bit deeper, making it more likely for the mind to get entangled in the future. So there are many ways to, skillful ways to put down the load. It's a kind of dying, right? We're letting the person who does obsess, who does worry, who does plan, who does revisit the past, regurgitate the past, we're letting that person, really it's just an impersonal pattern or impersonal patterns. We're letting those patterns cease, right? Through these different skillful means. And we're realizing this simple act of feeling the relative ease of the body, feeling, noticing the relative ease of the mind with the body. We're dropping into what's already here. There's a body and a mind here. Or you could say there's bodily activity. That just means the five physical senses, right? There's seeing, Even with our eyes closed, there's some seeing. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's tasting and smelling to some degree, not much. And uh, touching. And then there's thinking, mental activity. And thinking includes, you know, emotional movement of emotion as well, mental images, and then the verbal kind of thoughts. So there's all that mental activity. And then there's the activity of the five physical senses. Right? And... That's being known. But that experience of the activity of mind and activity of the body being known, right? it is being known, 
but knowing that it's being known is sort of a more refined experience, right? That's the experience of mindful awareness. When the mind realizes that this experience, this activity of the mind and the body is being known. It's good to be able to, for yourself, to define, to to help remember what mindfulness, what we mean by mindful awareness. So it's when the mind, the wisdom in the mind really, knows that this experience is being experienced, being felt, being known. Because, you know, in a sense, all day long we're conscious. That's how we got here. Or even, you know, now, you're all, most of you have your eyes open, you're seeing, but is there an awareness that seeing is happening? That would be a less common experience for you to be sitting with your eyes open and realizing in real time that seeing is being known. Or like right now, our bodies is, are all making contact with a cushion or a chair, right? So there's sensation there, that simple sensation of pressure or contact. But is there a mindful awareness like, oh yeah, pressure feels like this. Or we have some mood. But is there that reflective awareness? Oh yeah, there's this mood, it's like this. This mood is being known. Seeing is being known. Now of course, in any moment, the mind's not necessarily going to tune in or be mindfully aware of every experience. But it doesn't matter because what we're after is the sustaining of mindful awareness. Not, it's not so much about the mind knowing that this object, this experience is being known. But it's more about learning to trust this experience. You could even call it this space of the mind as opposed to the activity of the mind. So again, there's two things that the knowing mind knows. It knows the activity of the mind, thought, the movement of thought and emotion, and it knows the movement of the five physical senses, senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And that's being known by the mind that knows, which is different than the activity of the mind. So two basic aspects of the mind. The mind that knows, consciousness in a sense, and the activity of mind, what the mind knows, and the activity of the body. And sometimes, obviously, a lot of the time, the activity of the mind, the activity of the body is related. They play off each other a lot. So we're trying to recognize the awareness, but it's, you know, you can't see the awareness directly, but you know it's there because objects are being known. So that whether we call it the mind that knows or the space of the mind, the space of knowing, consciousness. Often we just refer to it as awareness. But we're really looking at that reflective knowing. And it just so happens, and this is one of the central teachings from the Buddha, that it changes everything. When a human being cultivates that subtle recognition that this is being known, where the emphasis isn't so much on the this, the object, the experience that's being known, but that it's being known, right? That changes everything. And that sense of space really um, ends up relating quite a bit to the experience of non-attachment, equanimity, relating peacefully 
with wisdom to the coming and going of experience, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Because as I'm sure we're all finding out, there's a lot in life that we're not in control of, you know, the different things that come and go. A good friend just found out has uh, a fast-growing tumor in his brain. You know, it's like, seemed like a very healthy person and all of a sudden things have changed. So these, this world we live in, the activity of the mind and body, it's, you know, in Buddhism we say, well, that's just the activity of nature. You know, and nature is just going to play out its own causes and conditions. And that's true in terms of our mood and our reactive patterns and our wise patterns and our burping and our passing gas and the aches and pains and twists and turns of our body. All of that is just playing out natural causes and conditions. And then there's the mind that knows. And the thing is, if we don't cultivate that mindful awareness, that space, that wise space that knows it's like this, then the very strong tendency of the mind is to be pushed around by all of that mental activity and all of that physical activity. Right? So when it's pleasant, we get, oh, this is great. Life is great. Being a human being is great. My life is... And when it's not pleasant, oh, this is not what I want. This is not okay. This needs to change. So we live our life, but the experience, the subjective experience is being constantly tugged and pulled and pushed and oppressed and betrayed and full of hope with all the different, you know, joys and sorrows, all the different ups and downs. And it never ends. You know, it's interesting how we like intensity, you know, roller coasters. I win, my partner was just saying earlier today, we have this thing we do with our cat where one of those big scratch posts that has a little place for the cat to stay on top, a little round kind of place for the cat to rest. And uh, we've gotten into this pattern with this cat who's kind of a rambunctious and uh, fearless cat uh, where we, we've tied a little string or a rope to the, top of it and because you can't do it with your hands because the cat will scratch and bite but we make it move all around you know so it's a little bit like terrible earthquake but, but the cat just <laughs> and so what is it about us that we just love this intensity sometimes we like and even in a way when we revisit our old wounds and old resentments or our sort of drop into our mind possibilities, winning the lottery, huge earthquake, you know, terrible things happening, the president does this. And, and in its way, it's like we're playing with outrage or playing with, it's like we seem, the system, the mind seems to want to feed on intensity. And so this is the problem initially in practice is we're developing a different taste or a different value. So instead of relating to our life as a human being with a fixation on the particular objects that are showing up, so an object-oriented life, a sight that we find really disgusting or really appealing, a thought we find really 
repulsive or a thought about the future that we find really exciting, right? It's like, in a way, an ordinary human being, we tend to be feeding on the intensity of pleasant mental and physical activities or unpleasant mental and physical activities and tend to ignore all the neutral stuff because we're intensity junkies. And it's only intense if it's the thought or physical experience, sight, sound, touch, whatever, is really intensely pleasant or intensely unpleasant. And nothing else seems to matter much. So that's just a normal mode for human beings. And with practice, cultivating this sense of the space of awareness initially, this is just the beginning, getting a sense of what mindful awareness is. Oh, this is just something being known. And the knowing, putting the emphasis on, is just something being known as opposed to what the particular object is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's a mental object or a physical object, whether it's neutral. That's less important than it's just another thing being known here, now, in the space of the mind. And so we're getting interested in the space of awareness, not because it's an end in itself, but because it starts to teach the mind something about equanimity, non-attachment, allowing everything to be, a willingness to include everything, to see that everything can belong, everything is allowed. Precisely because, in a sense, initially the mind is learning to take refuge, to trust the knowing, instead of to be tied to the particular pleasantness or unpleasantness or other particular objects that are coming and going in our experience. It's like, we might even in a very simple way be thinking about like, well, when I get home, I get to go to bed. Or when I get home, I get to eat something or get to watch something on a screen or something like that. And so then that object and the pleasantness, or maybe there's a fear like I got to deal with this. We had a difficult interaction with someone I lived with and now I got to deal with them when I get home tonight. Or my dog resents me and I got to, sort of make amends. And so it's sort of, then we can even be sort of using a particular object, like that's a thought. That mental, that uh, mental arising, you know, that thought and the emotions that come with that thought, then the mind keeps feeling like that's what, but we can remember that right now, It's just something being known. And even when I'm home and doing whatever is going to happen when I'm home, that will also just be something being known here in the space. And over time, the more we do this, it's more than just like a technique. We really start to intuit or directly, in a sense, directly experience the safety of that way of being where the mind is grounded in the knowing, the space of knowing, the equanimous and wise space that knows that objects come and go. And they're not self, it's not personal. Thoughts come and go and they're not really personal. Sights 
come and go. It's not really personal. Sounds, touches, smells and tastes. And you see it's a different value, it's a different orientation where really the mind is really learning to appreciate the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of non-attachment, the happiness of peace, as opposed to the happiness, the ephemeral but seductive happiness of this intensity of getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, feeling oppressed by getting what I don't want, feeling betrayed by losing what I do want. You know, all these different, and there's a certain juiciness to that intensity ride. Right? It seems like a, you know, a workable approach to life until we relax a little bit. This is why relaxation is such a central part of the practice because when we relax a little bit and we begin to tune in to like how good it feels to be content, to put down the load, then from that point of view, when the mind picks up the load again, so like you're feeling pretty equanimous, pretty settled in the middle of a set, and then your mind takes the bait It starts to worry about something that it has a tendency to worry about or obsess about something in your life that you have a tendency to obsess about. And from that point of view of equanimity and being relaxed and being content and feeling some inner peace, and then you see that the mind sort of reaching, grabbing, proliferating, it becomes very apparent to the mind, to the wisdom of the mind like, oh, this isn't what I want to become or who I want to be or how I want to be. This isn't skillful. This isn't helpful. But from the place of already being caught up in the intensity, right, latching on to the next interesting, fearful, exciting, positive, negative thing, it always seems to make sense. Just like, When we've eaten a bunch of Cheetos or a bunch of really sweet stuff, it seems to make sense to eat more of it. You know, it's like it starts to, it doesn't feel good at, you know, so you put another piece in and then it's okay for a while and then it doesn't, and then this is what addiction is, right? And it's more than anything, more than alcohol, drugs, sweets, whatever, media, we're addicted to this intensity, you know, pursuing pleasantness, pursuing the getting rid of the unpleasantness, and really uh, reinforcing the sense of agency, like, you know, some version of superhero getting that juicy good stuff and getting rid of, you know, and feeling bad that I'm not a superhero and I can't get the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. And, and that's the whole roller coaster ride. But when we start to sense this other value of equanimity, of peace, of contentment, of release, the release of the tension in the body and the mind, then it doesn't make sense to go back. We still may go back. In fact, we will go back because the habits, these habits of intensity, following intensity, of course, they have a lot of momentum. We've been doing them for a long time. And from the point of view of our thoughts, it feels a little dead not to 
because we mistakenly think that I'll just sit on the couch for the rest of my life if I lose my addiction to intensity. But actually there's another, like from the place of being peaceful, from that place of contentment and equanimity, there's nobody who's afraid of action. There's no place in the mind that's averse to engagement. It's just the mind, all that the mind is losing is its dependence on engagement and reactivity and chasing its likes and dislikes. It's just losing the attachment to engagement, not to the activity of engagement. So you'll still fall in love or get married or whatever, however that is for you, you know, that kind of going into relationship. And you'll still leave relationships, you know, and you'll still care and be moved. The heart will be moved by suffering, by injustice, and hopefully we'll respond and see the beautiful and appreciate the beautiful and support the beautiful and good. Because as a natural system, a, a naturally sensitive system, this body and mind is built to participate, to engage, to live, right? We don't have to personally decide to engage and live. So it's really important that we understand that this development of this other value is really more about teasing out the dependency, really teasing out the suffering in human existence, this human existence. We're not teasing out human existence, you know, like having a life, being a sensitive creature, caring, feeling moved, feeling touched by the good, the beautiful, by the horror, the bad. In a way, one of the telltale signs of developing your practice is we become more and more and more and more sensitive. We feel things so deeply the more we practice. The kind of stereotypic man who never cries, you know. People, you know, that part of us, I mean, it's really not even directly associated because we have both tendencies of masculine and feminine built into each of us. But, you know, some, one of the two tends to dominate it for most people, not everyone. And so if you're one of those people that have the masculine tendencies of sort of not being, not showing uh, vulnerability or not allowing the heart to be touched or the heart to be moved, you'll see that changing. Or if you're someone who tends not to be assertive, not to sort of be interested and play with power, express power, you find yourself not being afraid, not holding back as you do the practice more. Because we're sort of allowing nature to be nature. We're kind of taking away the rigidities, teasing out the rigidities that come from the fear and the greed. In a way, it's sort of funny to see people, I mean, in my position, kind of being here at the center since the beginning in 1993 and just seeing a lot of people. I mean, there's still people who were coming in those early years here and just seeing, like some people in this room have been practicing over 20 years, 
And just to know them and to see the effects, and it's just so amazing, it's so beautiful to see people who've been cultivating this mindful awareness over many years. Like it's, in a way, it's the same for everyone, but it, it expresses itself differently for each personality, each body and mind, because what's kind of getting teased out, you know, in a way it allows that particular very unique personality to more fully, completely express itself without the fear, without the greed. So in a way, some things are similar, but the actual expression looks different for each person. The thing that's similar is the lack of, the sort of deepening absence of resistance and weight and constriction. You know, the whole system of the mind and body is operating more and more without friction, an internal friction or an internal weight. And it's just, in a way, amazing that this very powerful transformation begins with the simple work. All we're doing is training the mind to recognize something very natural that when the system settles enough, then the mind can recognize this natural capacity to recognize this is being known. So it's almost like this reflective knowing is just waiting to happen, but it needs a system that's not absorbed into some reactive pattern, not lost in some obsessive or mental proliferation of some kind, right? And then, so when the system settles down enough, then we need a little bit of a pointing out instruction. Basically, somebody, some book or teacher to say, notice this capacity for mindful awareness like this. Capacity the mind has to know that this is being known. Like I mentioned earlier, like you can see, but we can also know that seeing is happening. Right? I can have my cushion on the I mean my butt on the cushion and I can then also know that pressure is being felt here. I can be mindfully aware, oh it feels like this now. And that opens up a sense of space, the space of the present moment. Otherwise we miss that there's this now. And this space of now is where that transformation happens because it's a place of learning. It allows wisdom to grow in the mind. right? Because the mind in that space of mindful awareness, in that reflective knowing, oh, it's like this now. The wisdom in the mind starts to connect a lot of dots. Oh yeah, when there's this, this happens. It feels like this. You know, when there's anger in the mind and the mind is taking the anger personally, then the body might get really tight. That simple, like, connecting of the dots happens when there's a reflective knowing, oh, it's like this. Anger's here, it's like this. Oh, I'm, the mind's getting identified with the anger, and that's like this. It's taking it personal. It's like this. Acting it out, it's like this. Or some wholesome acting out or uh, expression, you know, like being kind, 
Kindness is like this. Expressing the kindness is like this. Feels like this. Sets this emotion. So the it's so interesting. We know we begin our spiritual lives usually by thinking, "My God, I messed up. I really need to fix this thing, right? I fix this life. I've got to get my act together." You know, and we try to do it from like the outside in or some weird way, as if like I'm gonna like fix myself. But the thing is, that's just so neurotic. Because what this life is, is a, a natural process. So if any fixing is going to happen, it's going to happen as a natural process, not some weirdly constructed outside agent who sees that I'm mixed up, I'm confused, I'm bad, and I need to be fixed, and then fix it. That's just crazy making. right? We really, and we see, we've all done that kind of crazy making stuff for a long time, and we just end up tying ourselves up into more knots. But what we can do is understand, like, in this space of mindful awareness, we can understand how it is that unskillful patterns are being supported, reinforced. How it is that skillful patterns can be supported and reinforced. There's nothing, I think it's fair to say, from my own experience and of course from the Buddhist, the Buddhist teachings, there's nothing more powerful than this simple presence. No agenda but to see things as they are. It changes everything. And not only in terms of our doing it within our own mind and heart, but even this bearing witness, like in a group, you know, to be at home in a family that's like most families, you know, not perfect. And to be deeply sensitive, deeply awake, clear-minded, open-hearted, really present, feeling what we feel, seeing what's here to be seen, but not trying to fix the family, not trying to tell somebody what they should do or who they should be, or but just being really awake, it changes things, even without saying things, let alone then when we t- start to you know, act on what we see and feel. But just that presence, that honest, loving presence changes things. You'll see this, you know, when we study history, we see that a lot of powerful change comes when people start often together helping, supporting each other, just holding the truth of the way it is, speaking the truth of the way it is. Terrible injustice and other unwholesome patterns are hard to continue after a certain tipping point of people who see clearly what's in motion, what's happening. Things begin to change. Just bringing the truth to the surface. And this is a little bit about what we're doing within our own mind. We're just letting the truth, of the, especially of the activity of the mind, come to the surface where it can be seen. Oh, this is how it is. And so the practice isn't about getting in there and fixing it. It's about bearing witness, seeing it. And that's what 
changes the mind because the seeing clearly of the patterns, emotional, mental patterns, over and over again, without being afraid to see and afraid to feel what we feel, that that provides a powerful input to the mind stream. The mind is different each time we see a little bit more, see a little bit more clearly, a little bit more compassionately, fearlessly, what's in motion in our bodies and minds, and in our friends, in our loved ones, and in our world. You know, we often wonder why it's taking so long to do the healing, you know, especially in these sticky things these days, in particular around sexism, just more in the news, and racism, and classism, and all these just systemic ways that we are caught in suffering as a people. And then wider, you know, in terms of environmental destruction and harming other species and industrial agriculture, that causes so much pain and suffering. And it's a lot that we're willing to live lives of distraction. You know, when we really turn our attention, I, I have this uh, niece in my family who, you know, just in high school, high schooler, just decided to look online about uh, animals uh, raised for food, you know, and has become a vegan. <laughs> but just that, like, Bearing witness, oh, so this is how it works. You know, this is what goes on in the name of, and I'm not telling people what to do, but it's just sort of like showing up to these things that we're part of, whether it's, you know, paying attention to the the statistics around the criminal justice system and who gets incarcerated and just sort of looking at the racial profile of the people who get incarcerated. It's really hard to just look at the statistics without being shocked. Like, something is deeply wrong that this many people of color are in prison in this country. What's going on here? doesn't mean that there's all of a sudden an answer. It just means that we're willing to drop the comfort of distraction, the relative comfort of distraction. And this is the kind of work we're doing too. You know, we think there is, to some degree, a lot of calm that comes in practice. But the calm is immediately used to have, to be willing to see the activity of the mind in a more honest way. And a lot of it isn't pretty. You know, when we see the mind acting itself out, acting out its habits, of judgment, of self-hate, of neediness, of, you know, all the just... And those patterns may be toxic, but they're not personal. You didn't personally decide to have a personality with these particular patterns, right? I don't think we did, but there they are. And are we going to bear witness? Because that's the only way things change. Wanting things to change is not the way they change but seeing them honestly, clearly, from a place of relative calm over and over again, then things really begin to change. It's like uh, that kind of sensitizing of our mind, heart, body, no longer willing to live lives of distraction, 
just wanting to see. I mean, I've been married now for 25 years, and uh, we lived together a few years before that. So, you know, a relatively long time. But I'm still seeing things in my relationship with Wynne, my partner, that shock me. You know, and especially being away on retreat for a month, you know, having that break and then coming back, certain patterns just get, uh, just sort of stand out. You know, for me, it's like patterns of judging and uh, controlling and, and just like seeing, like, I mean, they're embarrassingly off, inappropriate. But but the way the mind generally, my mind generally works is it has ways of massaging it so it seems to make sense, seems to be rational, seems to be appropriate. But it, from a clearer, less biased point of view, it's really not appropriate, not helpful. It's like breaks my heart a little bit like, Oh, you know, this would be hard to bear. <laughs> you must be a saint. <laughs> you know, to have, or distracted, maybe a little bit of both. It's like, because that's how we defend ourselves from a rough, mean, often mean-spirited world, is we, you know, use whatever we can to kind of get through. That's why we close down. It's really heartbreaking. The more we cultivate mindful awareness, this stable sensitivity, you know, it just breaks our heart, which really brings out our humanity. I mean, this is what allows us to become a wise, to respond, engage in a wiser way. So I encourage people to, to you know, take some time especially at the beginning of each sit, to be a real beginner and, and to be very interested in this thing that Buddha made a big deal about and wise people have made a big deal about for many, many centuries now, what we often call mindful awareness. And especially these days, as mindfulness is getting pervasive in the culture and kind of more and more superficial, it's really a potent thing. It's not just this sort of you know, oh, the smoothness of the wood is so nice, or the color of the sunset. I mean, it, it does, that sensitivity of mindfulness does make sense experience kind of pop out in a more vibrant way. It's kind of a side effect of being mindful is that things just appear, everything seems to appear more vividly in our subjective experience. But that doesn't change who we are. That can just reinforce the greed and aversion because the unpleasant becomes more vividly unpleasant. Ugh, poop on the sidewalk, you know. It's like we get angry and then it's like we write letters and, you know, I, that we have a little, some of you know, I forget what it's called, but these little neighborhood uh, online things where you can communicate with your neighbors. And somebody in our local neighborhood here, I live not too far away, was talking about somebody was driving around giving bags to people walking dogs because clearly someone had left some poop near his house evidently and so he, he but he didn't know who it was so he was just going to give bags to everybody what he probably really wanted to do was get angry at the person but not knowing the person he thought you know indirectly express my anger to everyone who has a dog whether they're the ones doing it or not 
It's like these are prisons that we get imprisoned in for a long time, these patterns. So we have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some of you. I'm sure some of this will resonate. You might have some comments from your own practice you feel like sharing with the group. Or you might have some questions about what I've said or just more generally about the practice. Anybody want to begin? Yeah, please, Annie. I'm Annie. Um, I'm thinking about like, you know, like feelings or, you know, things that are sort of unpleasant that arise and, you know, trying to sit with them and recognize them. But then I also feel like sometimes I, these things start to arise and like, it sort of is like habit energy and like, when is it okay to just like stifle it before it even comes? You know, like, or is that just aversion? Do you know what I mean? I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. No, no, it's a, you know, you're very clear. Yeah, and you'll know, you know, just basically repeating that question in a real authentic way, not in a demanding way. Is this aversion? Is this helpful? You know, just having that, not even that you, I mean, you might want to articulate it verbally in your mind, but just, uh, because if you set the resolve to see w- what that sets in motion, that squashing of it, sometimes an aggressive move is necessary. Just like a parent sometimes, if a child is doing something dangerous, they're not going to worry about you know, being aggressive. They're going to grab the kid out of the street, right? Or pull the thing out of the child's throat that they swallowed, that they shouldn't have swallowed or tried to swallow. And so sometimes we have to do that, but a lot it can become kind of habit to sort of meet bad habits with a bad habit. And the interesting thing, the more we trust mindful awareness, the more we can trust these arising, these tendencies to go into an unwholesome direction, to cease on their own. I tell you, that is such a, as we see that more and more in our practice, it's so enlivening, so liberating to see that the putting down of these bad habits, the cessation of them, the letting go of them, isn't something that I have to do. So in a sense, in being sensitive and being awake and being mindfully aware, it sets in motion the letting go. Try being a jerk but from the point of view of being really awake, really aware, it's very hard to continue. You know, Even if it's gotten really triggered, that tendency to be mean-spirited or to attack or whatever your version of being inappropriate is. So you can take the route of like being the person who's going to stop myself, crushing mind with mind, they say in the Buddhist tradition, right? But it's the last, in in the Buddhist system, that's your last resort. So if you're going to do something unskillful, it's better to do something, anything, even if it's not successful, than to just say, okay, I'm going to be unskillful. Because you don't want to give in when you know that something's not helpful. You don't want to surrender and just do it if you know that it's unskillful. But we want the involvement to be less and less so that the abandoning of what's unwholesome is a more natural move that comes from the mind feeling, basically, sensing what's in motion 
sensing the unwholesomeness of it. And it's the feeling of the suffering, the stress in the unwholesome activity itself that causes the letting go. See, then it's really a natural phenomena. doesn't need an Annie who's wise, who's going to you know, use her superpowers to put something down. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Annie. Who would like to go next? Other thoughts, questions you might have about the practice? Uh, I'm Jake. Uh, so yeah, I've uh, my mind, I think, has a lot of habit energy and fixation. So I was hanging out with friends yesterday and kind of seeing that, I went into it with some mindful awareness and I think my mind was a little balanced and we were just sitting and chatting and and I noticed like just being a little bit more mindful, there was like a lot of hindrance coming coming up and maybe some ill will and all these things. And I could see how like, you know, my mind wanted to go towards like listening or talking or, you know, kind of, kind of. And uh, yeah, so then I just started repeating phrases of compassion to myself. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what else to do, but uh, yeah, thank Did you. Did it help? Uh, yeah, it seemed to help balance the mind. You know, I made it a little bit more uh, bearable because I couldn't figure out like, you know, what, what to do. So I was just like, what would help me show up in this moment? And it seemed like that would yeah. be good. When ill will shows up for us, like an example Jake gave, it's important to understand that you didn't do that. That's not personal. Like, you might have some emotion arising right now. And in conventional language, we say, oh yeah, I'm having this emotion. We personalize it. But directly, subjectively, that arising of any particular emotion that's happening because of past causes, right? So the only relevant thing is how the mind is going to relate to whatever it is that's arising, like in Jake's example, the ill will. That's what's relevant, how the mind relates to it. The fact that it's arising, you know, it's already happening. The causes for it to arise were already there. And then the that arising of the will, ill will was just expressing the causes that were there. So the important thing in terms of what gets set in motion in the future is what I do with it. It's too late to do anything about the ill will showing up because all of those dispositions are already there in me, whatever they are. You know, it's mixed, but the, like my, in, my, in my case, the tendency to be defensive or the tendency to be controlling, those tendencies are already there with whatever momentum they have in my personality, as well as some, hopefully some wholesome tendencies, right? So we don't take the wholesome tendencies personally because who I am in this moment, and in a sense as a self, we only exist moment by moment by moment. So if some really beautiful expression of generosity or kindness shows up, that's not me. In a sense, me is what I'm going to do with that, how I'm going to relate me in the sense of like what's getting karma that's getting set in motion. What am I going to do? Am I going to be distracted in this moment? Am I going to be attached in this moment? Am I going to crush it in this moment? Am I, Or am I going to see it wisely? Because if I see it, oh yeah, it's just this being known, and I don't 
interpreted as something personal, well, that plants some really powerful seeds in the mind to be equanimous in the future, to be peaceful in the future, to be wise in the future. Yeah, thanks, Jake, for sharing that. Did you want to go next? Uh, I'm Anders. So I'm having some trouble making sense of the idea of, I guess, being aware of being aware, kind of that Mm meta-awareness. I can make sense of the idea, I think you explained this a couple, um, probably like a couple months ago at a weekly practice group, but I think you described a meditation that you were doing where you were just focusing on the changing moment, just moment by moment, what's arising into awareness. And that I can do that, and that that usually helps with me staying focused and kind of in a mindful space. But the idea of being aware of being aware, unless I'm just understanding it incorrectly, it seems like we're trying to, like there's sensation and then there's awareness of the sensation. And it seems like I'm trying to focus my awareness on the awareness of me being aware of the sensation. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, I get caught in this like weird, like fabric. I don't know. This like loop almost. Yeah, I know language is tough here, but you know it's it's only it's always just one thing. So like the touching sensation of holding the clock, right? So I'm holding the clock, and so there's the touching is being known. So that's just one thing: touching being known, or weight being known, or smoothness being known. It's just one thing, and I can like tune in to the smoothness of the back of the clock, right? Or the smoothness, smoothness, this is smoothness, or that it's being known. So it's sort of two facets of the same thing, but what's being highlighted in the mind? That it's being known or that it's smooth or that it weighs this much. And it's really more about highlighting that it's being known because it, changes something it changes how the mind is it changes experience right and so that's the training is to realize it's being known it's part of the training at least that it's being known that it's being known and it the changing part that you mentioned is related yeah does that help yeah and it's interesting it's like awareness itself can't be known but when awareness is aware of something, then we have this ability to notice both facets, the object that's being known and that it's being known, right? And we we can know that it's being known because there's an object that's being known. Yeah, I think we have to end it here. It's 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds, put down the words, just enough to take a breath or two together. Appreciating these wise teachings from the Buddha and all the women and men and other folks over the centuries who in their busy lives, complicated lives, found the time, the interest to cultivate these practices, became wise, and then compassionately shared what they had come to learn. And then somehow were now the recipients of these wise teachings, it's our turn to develop this wisdom, this compassion, and to really contribute to the peace in our hearts and the peace in the world. 
So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.